Approximately 50 ships and 20 airplanes have gone missing in the Bermuda Triangle. 50 ships and 20 airplanes have gone missing in the Bermuda Triangle. The wreckage of many of the vessels has never been found and it's never been discovered. At least two incidents in the Bermuda Triangle region involving U.S. military craft have ended with lost vessels. In March of 1918, the Collier USS Cyclops, en route to Baltimore, Maryland from Brazil, disappeared inside the Bermuda Triangle. No explanation was given for its disappearance and no wreckage was ever found. 27 years later, a squadron of bombers, collectively known as Flight 19, under American Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, disappeared in the airspace above the Bermuda Triangle. As in the Cyclops incident, no explanation was given and no wreckage was found. What if there's something to the Bermuda Triangle? What if the Bermuda Triangle isn't just a legend that was popularized by Charles Berlitz's Legend of the Bermuda Triangle in 1974? What if there's something actually more significant that's taking place in the Bermuda Triangle? What if there is something that's causing these vessels to actually disappear? In the world today, we have what we, what we know as flat earthers and round earthers. Don't worry, we're not going to take a survey. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands if you're a flat earther or a round earther. But those are the two commonly accept, accepted theories about the earth that the earth is either flat or it's round. But what if both theories are wrong? What if the earth is actually limniscate in shape? Does anyone know what limniscate is? Limniscate is the infinity symbol, right? So what if the earth, what if the earth is actually limniscate in shape? Well, Limniscadians believe that the earth is limniscate in shape. Limniscadians believe the earth is limniscate. And if you find this intersection where the two cross, where the crossover happens, and if you go the wrong way, you actually start to live your life in reverse. That's what the Limniscatians believe. If you go the wrong way, you start to live your life in reverse. You don't go back in time, it's not time travel, but you actually start to live your life backwards. Instead of getting older every day, you get younger. Which, if you think about it, means that you could basically live forever, going forward some days and then going in reverse some days to unwind the clock. It's a veritable fountain of youth. And where is this intersection? Where is this crossing, the Limniscadian crossing? Where is that? It's in the Bermuda Triangle. Now, I know some of you don't believe me, but if I could connect a few dots around those missing vessels and the missing Flight 19 crew, maybe you'd start to think a little more deeply about it. Like, maybe there are other random disappearances that could help give credence to this idea, like Amelia Earhart. What happened to her? We don't know. Maybe she was the first to discover Limniscadia. And the lost colony of Roanoke, Virginia, well, it didn't actually disappear. All that happened was they just found the promised land of Limniscadia. Unfortunately, though, 
Not very many people believe me in my theory about the earth being limnoscate in shape, but there are a few. We get together to encourage one another, bolstering one another's arguments as we do. But we're not satisfied with that because we know we're right. So when we're gathered together, we start finding flaws in the thinking of those who disagree with us. And then after we've spent some time finding the flaws in their theories, then we find a villain, someone on whom we can point all of our frustration about the lack of belief in Lemniscadia. We're able to name our chief opponent and put a face to them. And instead of arguing for the validity of Lemniscadianity, all of our attention is put on the villain. Because of this, we're actually able to gain some more ground. We're able to, to help people join our cause because people love hating a villain. Eventually, we even get a few celebrities to join in with our theory. And a little at a time, over time, we're able to add more and more numbers to our cause. But still, Limdiscadianity doesn't have legitimacy in the public eye. Hmm. Well, how much acceptance do we need to gain such legitimacy? According to the social movement theory, all we need is 3% of the general population to believe and we will, we will gain legitimacy. At this point, my whole life now revolves around the belief that I'm right and anyone who disagrees with me isn't just wrong, but people who disagree with me are actually the enemy. And the more time Limnuscadians spend together, the more time we convince others to join us, the more complex the lie becomes, and the harder it becomes to see the flaws in our own beliefs. Over time, we only interact with people who agree with us. The more we get entangled into the lie, the easier it becomes to interpret the real world through the lens of our belief in Limnuscadianity. If only people would listen to us and be open-minded, join us in our search for the Limnuscadian crossing, then you too could live forever. Can't you see it all around you? I mean, we weren't supposed to live such short lives. We were made for more. And you've all heard those stories about the afterlife. Well, they're just pointing towards what we already know to be true. We just need to find the crossing. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking... There's no way anyone would actually fall for this. This is absurd. But what if you had a friend who started believing in Limnuscadianity? And what if you had another who joined with them and started believing? And then what if your neighbor and your coworker joined in? And what if others that you respect and mentors and teachers and maybe even some crazy pastors started to join the insanity? Over time, the more popular something becomes, more and more articles would start to crop up on the internet proving this to be true with more and more supporters as well. Eventually, you might just start hearing about it in the CBS Evening News, and Netflix might even do a docu-series about the idea. And with all this stuff happening around you, you might start to think, I know this is crazy. I, I know there's no way the earth is limnoscate in shape, but... Am I missing something? And that one subtle little shift, along with dozens of other micro changes in our position, we might just surprise ourselves by standing up, placing our right hand over our right eye, 
and reciting the Limnuscadian Pledge in Limglish. Limglish is the language of the original text. Parchments were found frozen inside the hollowed-out carcasses of sea lions in the Woodville Ice Caves in Nova Scotia. So if enough people you know and love joined in the journey to find the Limnuscadian Crossing, wouldn't it be hard to resist? Well, anyone believe in Limnuscadianity yet? I made it all up. It's, it's a whole, it's all, I made everything up. So there's no, there's no group that actually believes that. That's all fake. I don't, I don't believe the earth is limnuscate in shape. I'm just using it as an illustration. We'll come back to it in just a minute. The following article by Charles J. Stewart titled, Lincoln's Assassination and the Protestant Clergy of the North. One of the earliest effects of the Civil War was the division of the major Protestant religious dominations into northern and southern factions. By the end of 1861, the Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Protestant Episcopal churches had split over slavery and secession issues. Paul Buck states that northern pulpits assailed slavery and disunion as sins. Slavery disunion are sins. Southern pulpits upheld them as a sacred foundation of society and charged the North with sinful conduct in acting against them. As the war progressed, the ministers of both sides continually assured their congregations that God was on their side and he would see them safely through the crisis. In the spring of 1865, the Confederacy was near its end. The first two weeks of April brought the fall of Richmond and the surrender of Robert E. Lee and his army. The ministers of the North could now claim positive proof that God was on their side. For why else would he have allowed them to achieve such success on the battlefield? The thing that I find interesting about that is not whether or not one side was right or wrong. That's where our mind goes. Our mind goes, well, of course one side was right and one side was wrong. We can see now, looking back on the fact that, that the North was in fact right and the South was in fact wrong. That's, that's what we look back on. We say, but, and, we, and it's easy to say, well, of course, you know, God was on their side because they were right. But that wasn't the part of this article that stood out to me. The part that stood out to me was where it says, Ministers of both sides continually assured their congregations that God was on their side. Ministers of both sides continually assured their congregations God was on their side. Both sides, on the north and the south, were preaching sermons and they were taking passages of Scripture to justify their positions. I'm sure there may have even been some calls back to the original text to bolster their arguments. In the congregations of the North and the South, there was a lot more than 3% of the general population that believed that their side was right. So they had more than achieved legitimacy. And I like to think, I don't know about you, but I like to think if I were sent back to the South during that time, that I would stand up for the injustices of the era. 
But knowing what we know about how society works, would we actually do that? Would I actually do that? I mean, if everyone that I know and love thinks differently than I do, if I think this is wrong and they think it's right, if the narrative of the entire population thinks differently, if the main story that's being told by a group of people is different than my story, if that group has a clear villain that they were trying to defeat, and if we found ourselves completely immersed in a thoroughly defended and believed point of view, completely immersed in a thoroughly defended and deeply believed and held point of view, would we be able to withstand such pressure? Would we stand up against the injustices? Right? Well, I'm sure this isn't happening today. I'm sure there aren't any pastors using their pulpits, pulpits to further their political beliefs by claiming that God is on their side. I'm sure there aren't any political leaders claiming that their side is right and the other side is wrong and here's the proof. No one is using fear tactics to scare people into a fight against those who disagree. No one is using guilt and shame to convince people that refusing to live up to our way of life is deserving of being judged and dismissed. But isn't it odd that the more divided we get as a society, the stronger we seem to believe that God is on our side because right is on our side. Kerry Newhoff said, we live in the era of strongly held but poorly formed beliefs. We live in the era of strongly held, poorly formed beliefs. We often will share something that we believe strongly on social media and we're really passionate about it, but when we really think about it, we haven't done the research to know whether or not we believe everything that we're claiming we believe is true. Oftentimes, arrogance comes with these strongly held but poorly formed beliefs. In fact, the arrogance of holding these beliefs can be staggering. I remember a conversation that I had years ago in the food pantry. When we had the food pantry upstairs, <coughs> excuse me, when we first had the food pantry, there's the room up here to my right, your left, where the refrigerators are. There's still some freezers up there and some unplugged refrigerators that we need to get out of there. It's one of our projects for one of these work days. But in the middle room here where we now do our podcasting, we had a lot of chairs set up around and people, as they came up, they'd come up and wait to go through the line and they'd start the line in the refrigerator room, then go downstairs and come through the rest of the food pantry that was out in the lobby. And Jim and myself and Lindsay, uh, we would, Lindsay Quinn, uh, if you remember her, we would all sit in the room and just try to strike up conversations with people as they were sitting there waiting for their turn. Well, this particular person had been coming to the food pantry for several weeks and I'd been able to strike up some conversations with her. And this particular week, for whatever reason, and this person's personality, um, just had a, had a way to challenge people on what they believe and they were challenging me that week on the topic of homosexuality and trying to get a rise out of me. But I responded to every poke and prod with a question. I wasn't trying to fight, I wasn't trying to argue, wasn't trying to convince anyone of my point of view. I was just trying to get to her underlying beliefs about the topic. I was asking questions, you know, have you been hurt by the church or someone in the name of the church? 
Do you know someone who's been mistreated in the name of righteousness? But the deeper I dug into this person's beliefs, the more hostile they got with me. And again, I wasn't arguing from my point of view. I wasn't trying to convince anyone that I was right. I just was trying to understand where she was coming from. I wanted to know what she believed and why she believed it. Eventually, it reached a tipping point or a boiling point, and the response came, What's wrong with you? Why are you asking me so many questions? I said, I'm just trying to figure out what you believe on this issue and the underlying beliefs that you have about it. And she said, well, well, well I don't have any. Just leave me alone. And I did. Because I wasn't trying to get anyone upset. Sometimes we hold beliefs that we, that we don't really know why we hold them. It's one of the things we've talked about in the recent past here at 6-8 Church about having conversations, not dictations, conversations, not, not, you know, declarations, trying to force someone to believe what we want them to believe. We actually want to talk with people and we want to understand where they're coming from. We want to understand how they arrived at this position. We want to have a conversation. We, we want to dignify the people that we're talking to because they're human beings made in God's image, which we're going to get to in coming weeks. Sometimes, though, we're so confident that we're right that when we get challenged on what we think to be right, we have nothing to say in response. I mean, maybe sometimes, I'm, I'm hoping this isn't us, but I've been this person in the past. We get a few talking points from the narrative that we buy into, but not much more than that. And then when people start asking us questions about why we believe what we believe, we get angry. That's the only response we have because we don't have anything else to, to offer. And we lash out at the people who would dare have the courage to challenge our point of view. I think we can see this happening all around us today. If lemniscatianity were a real thing, it would be really easy to say, well, this is what I believe, and, you know, and maybe even you start challenging me, but I, I'm just you know, one of the late adopters. I'm not one of the early adopters. I wasn't in on all of the formation of the cult. I mean religion. I mean whatever it is. Sounds like it could be a cult. A creed from the office makes it sound like it could be fun to start a cult, so maybe it would be fun to start a cult someday. If anyone starts this cult, you need to tell me, though, because I want my royalties off of the cult. I feel like I deserve at least 10% for having the idea in the first place, so keep an eye out, keep your ear to the ground. But we often hold tightly to beliefs without really knowing what they actually are. One of the big contributing factors are the narratives in the world today. You've probably heard that word thrown around, narratives. It's often attached to the word meta, meta-narratives. Has anyone heard that meta-narratives? Anyone heard someone talking about the meta-narrative? Does anyone know what meta means? M-E-T-A? Any guesses? Close, yeah. According to uh, Wikipedia, 
A meta-narrative is a trans-historical narrative that is deeply embedded in a particular culture. So we have a narrative in our, in our current culture, and it's a narrative that's basically overarching. Another website, I think this was the Oxford Dictionary, says, an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. So meta just kind of means overarching. You may have noticed Facebook is changing its name, its parent company name, to Meta. Anyone notice that? So they still have Facebook, but the parent company is now named Meta, which I think should really help all the people who are already terrified that big tech knows way too much and is uh, going to really help us sleep better at night knowing that Facebook actually calls themselves Meta. They're overarching. They believe they're the overarching, you know, and Meta actually is talking about um, a new experience that's supposed to be coming in the future with virtual reality. We don't have time to get into that right now. But meta or meta narratives, of which we have many in our culture today. There are a lot of meta narratives in our lives that we're constantly surrounded by, and if we're not paying attention to them, often we can find ourselves getting sucked into them. Using my example of Lemniscadianity, if it were being propagated and talked about across the airwaves, if all of your friends were talking about it, if, all the, if the algorithm on Facebook was showing you more and more posts about Lemniscadianity, if you were listening to talk show hosts talking about it and reading articles on New York Times and Wall Street Journal about Lemniscadianity, it would get really hard to, to ignore what's going on with it. And that's what's happening in our world today. We have all of these meta-narratives. We have, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of meta-narratives that are, that are really starting to overarch society, some of which have been in work. And that's actually been the strategy for some of these. I don't want to get into the specifics of it because that's where things get dicey if we start getting into the specifics. But the actual strategy for, for a lot of movements is to create a meta-narrative over decades, over generations. So one of the big meta-narratives today has actually been creating a meta-narrative for about 50 years. And they've been telling stories from 50 years ago and starting to create them for today so that we have a meta-narrative about, uh, about that topic. And when we have these meta-narratives, it's easy to get, our, to get drawn into them because they can be all-encompassing. But the truth is, they don't really truly compare to what is the true meta-narrative. When you look at the idea of meta-narratives, of overarching stories, I think one of the things you can see in it is a longing to get back to Eden. It's, it's this desire in us that we were created for more, like that, that, that we, have this, we have this innate desire to be drawn to a higher story. There must be a higher story. Right? And when we find ourselves being pulled into things that were part of God's original design, we can see, oh, this, this is, the reason this is happening is because there's a void, there's a gap, there's a hole that we're trying to fill, and because we don't have this story occupying our lives in the way that it should, other things come in and take its place. But there is a true meta-narrative. There is an all-encompassing story, and it's God's story. God's story is the true meta-narrative of all creation. It's the story that ties everything together from the beginning to the end. It's how everything started. It's how everything is going to end. And God is the grand storyteller of it all, everywhere in between. That is 
the true meta-narrative. And it's our true, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's actually our true calling. It's the one true higher story that we are supposed to be drawn into on a regular basis, and it's the one true meta-narrative that demands our attention and demands that we live our lives accordingly. But this meta-narrative requires something of us. Requires humility. It's hard for us to submit to the idea that there is a, a, a story that we don't have control over. It's hard for us to, to look at the world and say, well, there's a story that's going on that, that's outside my control, it's outside my jurisdiction. We don't want somebody telling a story that we cannot change. We don't like that idea. But Proverbs, in fact, what you're going to quickly discover here as I cruise through a mountain of Scripture, humility is pretty much the basic requirement of relationship with God. I want to read a whole bunch of Scriptures for you to help paint a picture of biblical humility. Proverbs 16, and there's several right here in a row in Proverbs 16 if you want to look them up. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. I thought I'd start off with the best one, you know, start off with the easiest one. Like, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be detested by God. I don't want to be detested by the judge over everything. I don't want to be detested over the storyteller and the ruler of everything. So I don't want to do that. Continuing on, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You've probably heard that one. Pride goes before the fall. The prouder we get, oftentimes, the more predictive it becomes that we're headed to a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. The author of this proverb would make it sound like it's better to live in oppression, it's better to live in dire circumstances than to be rich, but yet be with the proud. Psalm 10, verse 4, in his pride the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. In his pride the wicked man doesn't seek God, and in all of his thoughts there's no room for God. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given me, Paul says, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And later he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. So already we're starting to see some connections that harmony, if we want to live in harmony with one another, with other people, humility is required. And pride is going to be the thing that gets in the way. James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
Again, I don't want to be opposed to God. I don't want God opposed to me. I don't want to be standing against him trying to win a face-to-face, a head-to-head battle. Now, there are two characters. Actually, there's a few, a few characters, but the two greatest characters of the Old Testament and the New Testament are both described as humble. The most prominent character of the Old Testament would be Moses, most prominent character of the New Testament would be Jesus. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. So the, the bookkeepers or the history keepers, those writing down numbers, their commentary on Moses was that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. In fact, if you know much about the story, you know that Moses had a hard time speaking up, that God had to actually bring a spokesman alongside him, Aaron, to speak for him because Moses was worried about stammering and stuttering. In the New Testament, though, the greatest example of humility is Jesus. My favorite, favorite passage in all of Scripture is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, Paul says. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' mindset? How did he approach life? Well, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus, being God in his nature, he was God, right? That's part of our our core belief as evangelical Christians or this this, uh, sect of Christianity that we're in. We believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's a part of our teaching. Well, Jesus was fully God and fully man, but he did not use his divinity to the advantage of his humanity. Throughout his entire life on earth, throughout his entire ministry on earth, Jesus never once used his divinity to help himself as a man. He didn't use his equality with God to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Even just his creation, even just becoming a human was an act of humility. It was an act of obedience. It was an act of submission. Prior to that, he had existed in an entirely different form. But he took on human likeness. And now scripture teaches us that for all eternity, he will continue on as a looking just like us as a man. 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who being in very nature God, humbled himself. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the the one who was not only there at creation, the moment all that we see was created, but he was the one who created it. That's what, what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus was the one doing the act of the creation. The one who did the act of creation, who who spoke everything we see into existence, humbled himself. And not only that, Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal God, the eternal being, the the three-in-one who have always existed from before time began and will always exist after long after time ends, Jesus humbled himself and from the moment he was born, he became obedient to death. Life became obedient to death. Jesus went to a point where he would submit to death the thing that was cursing his creation. Death is the curse of creation brought on by our selfishness, brought on by our pride, brought on by our rebellion to God, brought on by our desire to do things our own way. Death is the result of our resistance and our rebellion against God, and yet Jesus, the one who created life, comes and submits to death the curse that we brought to his gift of life. It's absolutely astounding. Second Corinthians, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus submit himself and, be, and humble himself to the point of death, but he actually became sin for us, the righteous one, took on all of the sin of all of humanity And he did this for us so that we could become righteous. He didn't deserve to die. He did nothing deserving of death. He hadn't started an insurrection or a revolt to try to take over Rome or Jerusalem. In fact, when he was being crucified on the cross, he was insulted and tempted by the crowd. You were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, were you? (laughs) Save yourself if you're God's son. Come down from the cross, Jesus. He could have, and probably most of us would have been tempted to, in that moment, use his divine nature as equal with God to rescue himself. But Jesus didn't use his divinity to his own advantage. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. If we're going to be Christ followers, and that's what we call ourselves here, we follow in Jesus' footsteps. That's our goal. We're trying to follow Christ, and sometimes we're following others who have followed Christ. That's what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So sometimes we're following those others, but all of us are trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If we want to really follow in Jesus' footsteps and be followers of Jesus, we have to humble ourselves by becoming obedient to death the same way Jesus did. John chapter 12, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking just moments, hours, before he would start the trials heading to the crucifixion. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there remains only a single seed. 
But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Another time when Jesus was teaching the same principle, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Well, we're talking about purple faith and the idea of purple faith, which we're going to explain in more detail in the weeks to come. But today, I feel like we need to lay a good foundation for purple faith, because it's hard, if not impossible, to be purple when we're proud. See, when we're proud, we're likely to fall into the trap of using God to justify our positions. When we're proud, we're likely to hurl insults at the representatives of opposing points of view. We're likely even to make villains out of the leaders of those who think differently than we do. But Jesus didn't do any of that. If we're following in Jesus' footsteps, we have to follow him not only in the idea of death, but in living the way he lived his life. See, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. The thing is, Jesus was right. Jesus was absolutely right in the way he lived his life. He didn't do anything wrong. Jesus was wrongly convicted and wrongly executed. If there had ever been anyone on the planet that had a right to fight for their vindication, it was Jesus. In fact, he's probably the only one that really had a true right to fight for his vindication based on the way he lived his life. But long before he got to this moment, Jesus made a decision. John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard this were again divided. Want to do an interesting study on division? Just read the gospel. Read a gospel and look at how often the Jews are divided over Jesus' teaching. Long before he was executed, Jesus had already decided he was going to lay down his life. And that's part of why the Father loves him. He was going to lay down his life for others. Even though he was right, even though his way, Jesus' way, was the only true right way that has ever existed, Jesus humbled himself. He didn't fight to justify himself and say, listen to me, listen to me, I'm the one that's right. You just need to follow me. Jesus did not use God to justify himself. Yes, Jesus taught clearly. Yes, Jesus taught the truth clearly. He never denied the truth. He never backed off from the truth. We're going to get into the complexity of that down the road. 
that there was never a moment where, where Jesus sought to justify himself using the name of God to belittle and put others in their place. In fact, Jesus died for every single one of them on the cross. Every single person that claimed that Jesus was a heretic, that Jesus did not have the right to be doing the ministry that he was doing, every single one of those that was chanting for him to be crucified on the cross, those were the ones, including all of us, all of humanity, that Jesus died for. In Isaiah chapter 2, we're starting to near the end, I promise. <clears throat> Israel is receiving some, uh, some, some judgment from God. Israel is full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. So Israel is supposed to be set apart, but they're embracing what's happening in society around them. They've embraced the practice of divination like the Philistines. They weren't supposed to embrace that. They were supposed to repel it. And they have embraced other pagan customs. Instead of being God's light into those people, they had instead embraced their way of teaching. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands that their fingers have made. So, God says, people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. For all that is exalted, they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower, every fortified wall, every trading ship, every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves and the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles. We've got a mole problem at home. They'll throw away to the moles and bats. They're idols of silver and idols of gold, the things which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Pay attention to this. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? We've put so much trust in mere humans. We've put so much trust in the teaching of man. We've, we've put so much of our trust in what humans are saying all around us. We, we've bought in so much to the narratives that are being preached on the airwaves on a regular basis. We are trusting in mere humans. Why are we elevating them, putting them up on pedestals? Why, 
Why do we hold those who hurl so much hate and cause so much division? Why do we hold them with such high esteem? Isn't it as though maybe we're living in some kind of limnuscadianity? In some way, maybe we've bought into a narrative that was created for the purposes of power and control and forgotten the true meta-narrative that exists written by the creator of the universe. Why do we have so much pride in our positions? Why do we have so much pride in the leaders of our different camps, our divisive camps? But what would it look like if we all humbled ourselves in the sight of the Lord? What if we allowed God to do what God has always said he was going to do? If we, well, if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then we can expect that God is going to do to us like he did to Jesus, Philippians 2.9. We're not going to get the same exaltation, but this is the exaltation that Jesus got. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. James, the quote Jim remembered last week when we were talking about walking humbly with God. He quotes and says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God will lift us up. Whatever exalting needs to be done, God will take care of. It's hard to be purple when we're proud. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Could it be that the reason Christianity has struggled lately is because of our pride? Maybe the reason Christianity has struggled in our current society has to do with the pride. And I'm not talking about just us in this room. Hopefully it's none of us in this room, but maybe we have. A Hindu that converted to Christianity gave the following address to a number of his fellow countrymen. He says, I am by birth of an insignificant and contemptible caste, so low that if a Brahmin should chance to touch me, he must go and bathe in the Ganges for the purpose of purification. And yet God has been pleased to call me, not merely to the knowledge of the gospel, but to the high office of teaching it to others. My friends, do you know the reason of God's conduct? It is this. If God had selected one of you learned Brahmins and made you the preacher, when you were successful in making converts, bystanders would have said, it was the amazing learning of the Brahmin and his great weight of character that were the cause. But now when anyone is converted by my instrumentality, no one thinks of ascribing any of the praise to me. And God, as is his due, has all the glory. Charles de Gaulle once said, graveyards are full of irreplaceable men. Graveyards are full of irreplaceable men. Have we humbled ourselves before the Lord? Are we allowing ourselves to be used by God to accomplish his great purpose? Have we surrendered ourselves to his higher calling on our lives? Or maybe do we struggle to see ourselves as too important to be humble? Do we see our agenda and our beliefs as too important to lay down?
graveyards are full of irreplaceable men. But there is one grave that's empty. There has only ever been one man to conquer the grave. There's only ever been one man that existed that defeated the grave. He didn't do it by power and might, but he did it by laying his life down. I hope as we go through this series, we'll do so humbly. I hope as we go on this journey to purple faith, we will, we will follow the creed of our church in Micah 6.8 and walk humbly with God. I hope that we will, we will seek to walk in Jesus' footsteps and live our lives in such a way that people are drawn to Christ in us and not trying to, through our lives or through our preaching and teaching, put people in their place. Instead, that people may be drawn to, drawn to Christ in us. Their only hope to overcome any of this. And I pray that God opens our eyes to anything in our life that we're embracing that isn't a part of his true meta-narrative. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus. And we're going to look at his life, and we're going to see by looking at a number of scriptures and the way he taught and the way he did ministry, we're going to see if Jesus lived in a purple way. And then we're going to try to define what purple faith actually is, try to make that clear before heading on in the series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Jesus walking humbly. I pray, Father, that that message would get to the deepest parts of our hearts. If anything that I've said this evening hits someone in the wrong way, if anything that I've said brings an offense, I pray, Father, that you would, would uh, speak beyond that to our hearts. If anything has, has stepped on toes in a way I didn't intend, I pray, Father, that you would speak through the mess of anything that I've made and speak to us. And I pray, Father, that you help us as Christians, as followers of Christ at 6-8 Church, to be those people who start to bring unity out of the division. That we as a group would bring unity among the diversity of thinking that exists in this room. That we would be unified even though we're diverse. That we have no, we have no expectations that everyone who comes to 6-8 Church has to believe the exact same things. But that we understand that you are leading us all into a deeper relationship with you. And that may we exemplify as a body of Christ here at this church, what it means to live purple, to live a life that, that, is, that is not most and first and foremost committed to our own ideas and our own beliefs and our own narratives that we've subscribed to, but that we surrender to the highest story. We surrender to the true meta-narrative of all creation, the true story of the God of the universe. We submit and we surrender our lives to that to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, we join in all creation bowing down and worshiping him. We humble ourselves, we submit ourselves as we worship and surrender to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.